but I just think that the mix right now, there are 14 scientists total in Congress, is just not the right mix to get us through this pandemic. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 40 of Good is in the Details. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Dalski, and for this episode, I will be joined once again with the very talented, very witty LA lawyer, Rudy Salo. We will be talking with Natalia Linos. She is running for Congress in Massachusetts' 4th Congressional District. I will link her webpage in the show notes so you can learn more about her. Something that is really interesting about Natalia is that she has a science background, and she is able to talk about the ways in which science can assist our political discourse. And we talk about a lot of things like healthcare, environmental justice, COVID-19, reopening schools all of these things that are really hot issues right now. Thank you, Natalia, so much for joining the show. And for the listeners, thank you for the support. This episode is going to wrap up season one. Don't worry, we're not going to be gone for long. I know you're worried. We'll be back in September. But if you haven't had a chance yet, please rate and review the show. Maybe listen to some older episodes, catch up, screenshot your favorite episode, and tag us on Instagram, good is in the details pod. Or you can send an email if you have any questions about this episode or other episodes or things that you would like to hear more about. Good is in the details pod at gmail.com. I will also link our Patreon account so that if you'd like to support the show and you can get behind the scenes content, join the book club, all sorts of good things when you join Patreon. Okay, now let's talk science and politics. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to lead in this episode. Very, 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 very special guest. Dare I say a a relative of mine in a way, a cousin-in-law. I know on the show previously, I've mentioned this cousin this and this cousin that, and I, I do have a ton of cousins, but this is the wife of a cousin of mine. I'm a big believer in her. I'm a big believer in everything that she does. I've known her for 12 years having had the pleasure of meeting her in Beirut, Lebanon, when I went to go visit my cousin there. And she was working and my wife and I had the pleasure of, of meeting her before she was a part of the family. And it's, and it's been great. Her name is Natalia Linos. She's running for Congress and she'll be talking all about that today. And we'll approach that from a philosophical standpoint with Gwen asking those questions. And I'll just kind of be peppering her from a legal perspective. And without further ado, I welcome Natalia to Good as in the Details. Uh, thank you for joining, Natalia. I I don't know if you had the opportunity of listening to any of our prior episodes. I have to admit, this is the very first time where we've had somebody running for an elected office. So that's really awesome. I I really appreciate you coming on to the show. It's so exciting. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Rudy. Thank you for having me, Gwen. It's uh, it's really a pleasure to join you. So I'm going to ask you a question that the whole family, if we were all face to face, what are you doing? (laughs) Well, I am taking it day by day. So let me tell you how this decision was. was Please, please. Okay, you know that I'm an epidemiologist. I I have worked in public health for a long time. I've also worked at the United Nations for 10 years and have done a lot of global work. And so I had been watching COVID and being very active. I currently serve as executive director of a center at Harvard on health and human rights. So I was writing pieces in early March saying that this country, if we didn't take our inequities seriously, as well as our anti-immigrant sentiment, our alternative facts, that we were in trouble. So on March 2nd, when we only had one death, 
I co-authored a piece in the Washington Post with the former New York City Health Commissioner saying, pay attention, please pay attention. We could be the country with the worst epidemic. And then that continued. And we, start, we wrote more and we got on the news and we were talking about racism in health and how this was playing out in communities of color. And it felt so painful to watch. And then to also hear, you know, Trump and the calls for fire Fauci and then the calls for dropping out of the World Health Organization in the middle of a global pandemic. It felt urgent and I decided to step in. So yes, I had a chat with Paul, your cousin. And I said, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm thinking of running for this open seat. And he said, okay, when is the deadline to get the nomination papers? I said, in one week. He said, okay, there's no chance you're gonna get enough signatures in a week, so go for it. You know, so it was kind of this like, you have a crazy idea. I'm a supportive husband. Let's see how it goes. So we basically got friends and volunteers and in five days got 1200 signatures and i got on the ballot and so it went from this crazy like i am so angry like every other public health person to actually i'm running for congress and now i am running for congress that's awesome and the reason for it is fantastic you are fed up and you want to make a change which is the number one reason why I think people should go into any type of government, whether that's local government, state government, federal government, you feel like I'm educated. I know what I'm doing. I want to, instead of just tweeting about something or posting something on Facebook or, or sending text messages to my friends, I want to do something. I want to make a change and God bless you for doing that. I, you've got way more guts than me. I will never run for office. There's no way. There's a billion reasons why, but I would never do it. I, I am that Twitter, Facebook person who will just sit <laughs> on, a, on a podcast and say things. So I'm proud of you and, and I really want you to win. Just really quick, when you got that 1200 signature, what was the look on Paul's face? You know, I don't know how honest I should be because now people, I am now in full swing and doing really well. So, okay, let's take it back. And you know, <laughs> for anyone who, uh, you know, doesn't, I'm a very serious candidate right now, but those days it was kind of like, oh my God, when we were, we were counting them one by one as they were coming in. And when we hit about 900, he was like, I don't actually know if I want you to get to a thousand. And you know, and then there was a waiting period because those have to be certified. And so you have to get a few weeks past where they certified that those are actually valid signatures and everything. But, you know, we have three kids, Rudy. I have a seven-year-old and three-year-old twins. He has stepped up in a way that any candidate, any parent right now has to step up. And so it's been, it's been amazing. And there's full support from him. And we have amassed about 230 volunteers who believe, not in me, but believe that we need more science in Congress right now. They believe that someone with my skills are uniquely placed to get us through the months and years ahead, which are going to be so difficult. My internal family issues is one thing, but on the bigger scale, it has been so amazing seeing how many people across Massachusetts, across District 4, where I'm running, uh, but also outside of the district are saying, yes, we need more scientists. We need more people with a public health background right now in office. One of the reasons why I wanted you onto this podcast is I am trapped here in Los Angeles. Otherwise, I'd be on a plane and, and be knocking on doors there with you to support you. But this is another way of getting your message out there and getting your name out there. So I'm hoping that that'll build some momentum on that. Gwen, are you pretty amazed that I was able to get somebody running for Congress on your show? Did, did, my, did my stock rise with you? Or is it just like, ah, oh, she's a relative of his. Of course she came on. Rudy, that reminds me. We did get an email. Somebody saying that you are funny. Uh, was, that was my it, mom. Thank it you. was from my mom. <laughs> <laughs> good. That's very good. I'm very happy about that. Thank, thank you. 
Um, I am absolutely thrilled to have you. So yes, bravo, Rudy, because I am absolutely thrilled to have you on the show. One of the courses that I teach is called Science, Technology, and Society, and it is full of science majors of different stripes, um, you know, biology, chemistry, and there's some engineering students. And one of the things that we go over really is that there are a lot of presuppositions that are cultural, uh, that can be political, that have to do with science. I mean, funding for science comes from taxpayer dollars, a lot of taxpayer dollars. So if you don't have an educated system, then people are less likely to want to vote for somebody who is promising that there will be more science. So that's something that we talk about. We talk about the eugenics program in the United States. And we've talked about the Tuskegee experiment. In addition to American except, uh, exceptionalism, I don't want to make it sound like it's all just dark. From your point of view, since you are in science, what do you think that science offers politics or how can science inform politics? So my biggest contribution is that science and having scientists in Congress will change the way that we think about legislation, you know, and Rudy, not no offense to lawyers, but, you know, there is something about you know, a legal or a, an argument that this is kind of a bill that we're putting forward. But what I hope to bring, and I'm running on a platform for science and equity, is that I will look at the numbers. I will do modeling or from historical data to say this legislation will have a disproportional impact on, say, wealthy whites, or it has a benefit for our communities that have been left behind, and really running the numbers and looking at every legislation and saying who's benefiting the most, who is losing out, and how do we sort of ameliorate that issue? And so, for example, on climate change, right, we know we need to move towards green energy and transition away from coal. A just transition will require some people running those numbers and realizing who are the ones who are currently employed. How do we do the just transition so that they can have new employment? What are the numbers? You know, are we talking about 100 people or 100,000 people? And that has big implications. So people who like numbers, like me, would be able to support that process. And for me, who you know, I come from a public health background. I also think I bring a new dimension to the conversation. So on climate change, or in, I know you're a big transportation guy, Rudy, so I'll, I'll start a transportation example. Um, you know, the argument can be made for investments in mass public transport from an economic argument, as well as uh, obviously an argument for greener, you know, in, in my district, 40% of our emissions are from our transportation, but it can also be made from a health argument. Air pollution is one of the top concerns and it causes so many challenges to the human body. So you, I could run numbers and say, you know, actually the air pollution benefit and the money that we save from our healthcare system can be poured into mass transportation. So it's new perspectives, new ideas, uh, more synthetic thinking. I don't think scientists have, it should be all scientists, but I just think that the mix right now, there are 14 scientists total in Congress, is just not the right mix to get us through this pandemic. Did you say 14? 14, yes. Yeah. And, and, how many, and how many lawyers are there? Oh, probably, I don't know, 200, 300. I haven't actually run too, the numbers. So the answer is too many. Okay, the answer is too many. Because, you know, what lawyers, sometimes what we tend to do, uh, I've learned this after, after practicing all, all these years and looked at some bills, sometimes we write things that are so complex and that are so overly engineered for the purpose of, well, they're obviously going to have to hire a lawyer in order to read this, in order to implement this. So we're always worrying about keeping ourselves employed. Whereas it seems like we definitely need more science 
scientists in, in Congress. I believe me, as much as I love being a lawyer, as much as I love, you know, having the positive impact on society that I do from my small little world of it, I do think there's too many lawyers in politics and, and want more people of other backgrounds. I'd love to see more philosophy professors, or I'd love to see, you know, more scientists. And, and, we, and we just filibuster everything. Yeah, yeah. That's, see, that was, <laughs> just, I seriously was right about to say, talk. <laughs> the problem with the philosophy professor is, is you guys would just keep talking and never come up with an answer. Um, so Natalia, you said one of the reasons that pushed you or really pushed you towards this was COVID-19. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, did you ever have an inkling any, any at all, any kind of political ambition at all? And it's okay if you don't feel comfortable answering that question. Answer, I'm just curious. The answer is yes okay. in the broader sense. So I worked at the United Nations and, you know, that's what I was doing in Beirut when we met yep. uh, for a decade. And that also included being a speechwriter to the former prime minister of New Zealand, who was the head of UNDP, to the former vice president of Costa Rica, uh, who currently is, leads the Ibero-American sort of community. So I have worked for some phenomenal women leaders. I then served as science advisor to the New York City Health Commissioner, all three amazing women. And all three, I had conversations, you know, from my early 20s about running for political office. And, you know, funnily enough, Helen Clark, about... Yeah, it must have been 10 years ago, said to me, you should run for Congress one day, you know. And I had said, you know, I think I can be political and have an impact by being in the United Nations. You know, I had a good career and the United Nations advises governments. You know, I was talking to ministers about their policies around gender equality. Uh, when I led the climate and health portfolio, I met with the Minister of Health of Fiji and he was really worried about what was going to happen, whether hospitals might go underwater and trying to get examples from how we can refurbish hospitals and ensure that they can work even during, say, flooding and things like that. So it felt like I could have an impact. And then President Trump was elected and it felt that this country really needed to look inwards. You know, the United Nations was a nice way to say, let me help the rest of the world become more equitable. And then the injustices here at home have just become so pronounced that I decided to leave the UN and first of all, come to Harvard to work on health and human rights, including things like criminal legal reform, racism in health, issues that are really plaguing our country. And COVID was just such, has been such a wake up call for everyone else. It's not surprising to me, but what it is for me is an opportunity. I really see this tragedy, this tragedy in terms of lives lost, this tragedy in terms of income and employment loss to have the conversations, the difficult conversations around Medicare for all, around what we want our future to look like. What does it mean to be in a more equal society. And I do think we have this narrow window of opportunity to have difficult conversations and to move forward. And that also includes on racial um, justice. And, you know, George Floyd's murder is not the first and it wasn't the last, but something about, I think, the pain that the communities have felt and COVID just being so inequitably, you know, distributed just has given everybody this urgency. And so I want to be part of that team in the next Congress, figuring out the big questions. And that's why I'm here. Are you seeing this as being an amazing opportunity because we're so exposed as a country? Our economy is exposed. Everyone is suffering. Everyone is feeling the pain. Because of that, we might be willing to make some changes because it's like almost like, well, everyone's hurting. If we're going to make some fundamental changes, let's do it now. So COVID-19, it seems like you're seeing it as, hey, it sucks. It's terrible. 
millions of people are going to die, millions of people are going to suffer, but let's try to get the opportunity out of it because maybe people will be willing to listen, whereas they weren't willing being willing to listen before. Do you see it that way? Exactly. That's exactly how I see it. I see it as this recognition that, you know, Medicare for all was too costly, but we have seen today how costly it is when we have to shut down everything because of a pandemic. Similarly, climate change, we, we were saying we're going to push it off, push it off, but we know that climate change is going to lead to more pandemics, more, you know, more of this. This is a zoonotic disease. It's because of our relationship with animal habitats and our environment. And so that conversation of, you know, any climate action is too costly. I, I really see it as a chance to have those conversations. And the racial patterns of how COVID has hit communities of color so much worse you know, if you look at the data for young Americans, 30 to 45, the rates of deaths for Black young Americans as compared to white young Americans in some parts is nine, eight, nine times as high. You know, this is not acceptable. And so we need to be able to recognize, say it's not acceptable, and now think about doing something about it. And so I think that it's an opportunity, for example, to start talking about reparations, whereas, you know, that was seen as fringe a few years ago. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm being too optimistic because this administration obviously is, you know, wants to believe that COVID, the American populace is just going to accept that we're going to have hundreds of thousands of people getting sick every day and, and many, many dying and that that is just going to become the re new reality. I don't think so. I think it's going to become a call for real self-reflection. Yeah, it's better to be an optimist. I agree. I mean, the one, and we we were not going to get into this, I promise you, the one negative long-term impact of COVID-19 that I really fear and I have been writing about could be on public transit. I do feel like that fear and, and the, the statistics yeah. that are coming out of it, because I was a hardcore believer in public transit. And now I'm kind of, because of, you know, I, I'm pretty fearful of diseases even before COVID-19. So it's one thing where I'm hopeful that we can still going in the right direction. I just, I don't know. Gwen, what do you think? Do you think we can get some positive things out of COVID-19? I think so. I'm, like I said, I'm really excited about this conversation and you've hit on so many things that have really, what, what you're doing, what your platform, your conversation just in these last few minutes has really demonstrated for me as somebody who's in academia, who's in the university system, that we do this disingenuous separation of topics. You major in politics, you major in science, you major in engineering as though, or, you know, so those things have absolutely, or, or ethnic studies as those as if those things have nothing to do with each other. And you have actually demonstrated how all of these things are interwoven, that when we care about one, we are inevitably caring about another, that science is not just this pursuit of curiosity, but it's a preservation and an investment in the quality of human life. And human life is defined in part by some of these racial disparities, um, poverty, economics. So I really love what you're doing. One of the questions I wanted to ask was about this notion of environmental justice. I was hoping that you could give a definition of what that means. And then I also, as you briefly touched on the economics of it, from the right, there seems to be this concern that environmental pursuits or a green economy is something that would diminish the economy. Can you give an argument of how it would not only be healthier, but profitable? Yeah, no, that's two really important questions. And I, I love the first one about environmental justice, because that's how I entered into the environmental work that I've been involved with. You know, I was much more of a social justice activist around racial equality, income inequality, those issues, rather than thinking about the environmental justice issue. 
And I mean, the way I would define it is that environmental impacts, whether we're talking about air pollution, toxic waste, or even the long-term impacts of climate change are not going to be distributed equally for all our populations. So already in cities like New York City, where I worked at the New York City Health Department, your poorest communities are the ones that are near the main you know, highways where they have really high levels of air pollution. Kids have high levels of asthma. Similarly, you know, in parts of Massachusetts where we have water and, and other places where water needs to have you know, cleanup issues, you have communities that are poor, often communities of color, being the ones that are exposed to the most environmental risk from, and talking about energy, we, we see that, you know, coal plants and other sort of polluting energy sources usually are also home to or in the vicinity of some of the poorest or most marginalized communities. So the environmental justice movement recognizes that, you know, and, and you, you may have heard the term environmental racism, that in this country there is an overlap between where environmental impact is felt the hardest. What I find interesting from an environmental justice perspective is I've just talked about this generation, right, our inequities today, but obviously how the youth movement is talking about is about intergenerational justice and how, what are we leaving the next generation? I know you're a new mom, uh, I'm a mom, you know, and that concern. And I know that the 17 and 18 year olds that I've been talking to who are at the front lines of the climate movement, they are genuinely scared. It's not, they're not pretending, they're not just joining because they're excited about this movement. They are generally scared. There is a deep sense of fatalism, depression, anxiety. You know, there's a term in the mental health field of eco-anxiety, where they really feel that we have as adults and then also our parents have really left a worse world for them. So that leads me to your next question about the economic case. I think the economic case is fundamentally tied to the health case. Like if our communities are less healthy and, you know, we have suddenly in the U.S., there has always been an upward trend in terms of health. Every generation has done better than the last one and we have hit the tipping point. And now future generations are expected to do worse than our generation. And that is in part because of the environmental impact. It also other determinants have played in. So I do think that one case to be made is that the health dimension the, is core to the economic dimension. But obviously, and maybe Rudy knows more about this from the transportation side, but from the green energy side, solar right now is more affordable. And, you know, we are subsidizing fossil fuels. So it's not even the, the economic argument today is that we should be rushing towards renewable energy and that the government could with a few investments to get the technology moving that in the long term it's much it's cost saving so rudy to you because i i feel like i may not know the full answers i come at the environmental justice perspective from also as, as a father of two young children and i'm and, and and a lover of this one of the things that i love about the state of california is its diversity its landscape its beauty it's my favorite place on earth earth is lake tahoe i want to preserve it i want to keep tahoe blue etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. so i i care about all the environmental movements and and i swear one of the major reasons why i became so hardcore in public transit mass transit is because i know the long-term damage of fossil fuels. I just do. You know, when my father immigrated to this country in the 1960s in Los Angeles, he said the sky was black and brown all the way up until the 1980s. So, you know, and this is a story I've told Gwen a couple of times. I didn't even know where, where we where Gwen and I close grew up. I didn't even know there were really canyons or mountains there until sometime in the 1990s when I looked outside and I said, 
to my mom, I said, what are those? She said, those are the mountains that, that we live by. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, but things changed. I mean, and that had an impact on me as a kid and I started to walk and I started to use the buses more. What I'm happy about is through COVID-19, people have been driving, okay, maybe they have been driving more because they're not using public transportation. However, the work from home movement, if we, if that if one positive from it, that we can go through all the negatives we wanted to, but there is going to automatically going to be a drop of the carbon emissions that are in the world. I mean, that we've been seeing some healing throughout the world because people are working from home and there has been a shutdown. Now, that's temporary. Long term, I'm all for electric vehicles. I've told my wife, I've told everybody that if I buy a car, which, you know, with the whole COVID-19 thing looks like I'm going to, it's going to be an electric car. So I'm all in on electric vehicles. I am personally. Here's the thing. Here's the one thing that I keep bringing up because uh, my area of expertise, Natalia, is transportation finance. And one of the primary ways that we've, and then I'm telling you this because I'm hoping when you get into Congress and you need to call somebody about transportation finance and how we need to fix all this stuff, you're going to call me. One of the primary ways that we build infrastructure and finance it in this country is actually through the gas tax. Think about that. We buy gas, we take a portion of that, we put it into the highway trust fund or into these other trust funds, and we build out our roads and our infrastructure. So here's what's been going on. As cars have become more fuel efficient, the gas tax fund has depleted. And nobody in Congress is willing to touch the political third rail of raising the gas tax, which has not been raised at the federal level since the 1990s, because everyone's being worried about getting voted out of office. The other issue is electric vehicles, basically, because they're electric, they're not paying for gas. So some people say, oh, well, they're not paying for their fair share of transportation. So we need to rethink the way that we finance our infrastructure in this country to accommodate these green new ways of of our future and our vehicles. And that's why I'm a big proponent of vehicles miles traveled, whereby, you know, any car they pay by their use of the road. So infrastructure is huge. You know, when you get to Congress, God willing, everybody talks about it. The Republicans talk about it. The Democrats talk about it. That's one way where we can rebuild our economy is by getting people back to work. So infrastructure is always going to be huge and it needs to be focused on. But I would like everybody to come at it from a green point of view and how we can implement clean energy and think about how we can use financing mechanisms that get away from the old way of financing and think about the things in the future. That's my approach to the whole thing. Yeah. And I agree with you. That was good. Thank you. And I have heard from other sort of transportation activists, the same argument, you know, and from an environmental justice perspective, you know, you have to do something to ensure that it's not a regressive tax, but you just deal with that. And that's where a scientist would say, okay, I have weighed this out and this is going to have this impact for these low income or working families where they disproportionately spend on gas. And this is what we're going to do in terms of a tax break or uh, direct remittance for them. So I'm with you. I wanted to ask the numbers, as you have mentioned that COVID-19 is what it's exposing about an existing structure and particularly with racism that you have people of color who've been hit harder with COVID-19. So those are the numbers. Just for our listeners, could you give an explanation as to why that is the case? Yeah, and that's really important because the wrong explanation is to try and link it to genes or to race. It's racism. It is an underinvestment in our workers. A lot of uh, working class Uh, low-income workers especially, were essential workers. But they weren't the essential workers at the hospital who had PPE 
they were the essential workers in the grocery stores or in other places. So their exposure in the workplace in meatpacking is one place where we know the data shows huge explosions that basically low income workers were never given the protections that they needed. Low income workers more likely, as Rudy said, to use public transportation. And, you know, we could have put buses at a more regular, faster speed, not to force people to like cram in there, but we failed. There was a disregard for worker rights in general, the fact that you don't have paid sick leave meant that people would basically have to either go to their job sick or risk losing their jobs. So that is the main thing. Overcrowding in terms of your household, you know, recognizing that for some of the poorer families, especially immigrant families and a lot of the Hispanic families, at least in the data I've looked in, there's a lot of intergenerational households. And that is in part because of it's too expensive to pay for childcare and it's too expensive to have a big house. So you have a family with a grandparent, a parent, uh, children, all in like a one bedroom apartment. So you can't do the self-isolation and say the one person there is working in a nursing home and is really exposed and coming back in and out, that entire household is at risk. So public health folks like me said, you know, wash your hands, stock up on two weeks of food, don't go out, work from home. But how many of us have the privilege to do all of that? I mean, I don't know. I spent hundreds of dollars stocking up on food and diapers. And, you know, in Boston, the net wealth of a Black Bostonian is $8 versus $250,000 for a white American. You know, so many of our neighbors just don't have savings to go buy, which means that they were exposed every day. You know, they had, they live paycheck to paycheck, whether it's weekly or borrowing money. So we just did not make it possible for people to follow the public health guidance. And that has to change. And then the worst of it all is we punished people. You know, there were these videos of people being pulled off buses for not wearing a mask or our society should not be punishing people. We should just have masks on buses and people can pick them up. You know, like there is a very different approach to dealing with a pandemic than a punitive one. Yeah, Natalie, actually to that point, I mean, and it's a, it's a great point about can't, I don't know if this is a part of your platform, but would a part of a platform be free masks for everyone or something along those lines? Like, cause I, I would love to go up to people that don't have masks and give them some masks because, yeah. you know, I, I bet we've mentioned this on a couple of shows. Kate, like you, was following COVID-19 uh, since back in December and January. And she would periodically stock up on some things. She was not a hoarder. She was being very, very judicious, but we had face masks. Every time I see face masks available at Target, I buy some, I put some aside and I give them, give them away. I've got a cousin that is an essential worker. He's delivering food. And he often, you know, his mask gets dirty and thrown away. So I always give him a mask every time he comes over here. And, and because I'm crazy and have OCD and I don't want him around me unless he's wearing a mask. So I feel like that's beneficial. But is anybody running on a, hey, a free mask for everyone platform? And if not, should they be? I think not that your audience will delve into my campaign, but I did launch a 26 page COVID plan. It is, you know, I do well with the Warren supporters. So people were like, we need a plan. And so give us a plan. And my plan has, you know, it's on reopen, recover and rebuild. So the reopen part is more the public health needs. The recover is about our small businesses, what we do with the economy and the rebuild is where I touch on the green economy and aligning with the green deal and 
really asking the questions around Medicare and, and the big picture questions. But so in the reopen part, I talk about making sure that all workers have free PPE. Uh, so I haven't prioritized it to be for everyone, but every worker should have it. And whether, you know, I really, really worry about in Massachusetts, uh, we're doing pretty well on COVID. So the governor has allowed indoor dining, but that's terrifying to me. We know that indoor transmission is really high and the average person who is either busting tables or, you know, is, is possibly like your cousin may, will get a dirty mask and won't have the money to buy new masks. So we need to make sure that there is free PP of high quality for people who are working indoors. And so that is part of my plan, but I haven't made it like my campaign uh, mantra. Maybe I should. I'm curious, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if Gwen was going to ask you this question, but it seems like the topic du jour, at least here in, in California, is schools reopening in the fall. I'm also thinking we're not only talking about children, we're talking about schools. We're talking about the teachers. We're talking about the custodians. We're talking about people who work in the cafeteria, that it's not as simple as just saying, oh, children don't get sick, so don't worry. There's a lot of other people who work <laughs> in a school. And so I'm glad you brought that up because I was wondering what you thought. Yeah, no, and that question, I get it all the time. And let me start, I start with basically our fundamental, the premise that schools are really important for many reasons for kids. They're important for their education. They're important for many kids. That's where they get some of their health care. That's where you identify if kids are at risk of abuse at home. Schools are important for our future. So opening schools, I think we have to recognize that as a top priority for our country, for our economy, for reopening. And I start with that as a principle. And then as a working mom, I take on the secondary principle that the impact of not opening schools will be felt more by women and it could take us back years in terms of our gender equality and the way we have progressed in making sure that women are making the same salaries because I worry that we're not gonna have a COVID vaccine for at least a year, maybe two years, maybe three years. Are we gonna keep yeah. kids home for that long? If it was a short term, I would say so. I start with that premise that from both an education and a well-being of kids and a well-being in terms of gender equality for working parents, but especially for women, that we need to solve this problem. Starting from there, then I say, are we ready to reopen? No. The way you can reopen safely is one, you have real community control. So a place like Massachusetts, more likely than say California right now, which you know you guys are going upwards. You have to take into account what is happening in the community to make that decision. But what people are not saying enough, although a lot of parents have been saying this, is that in order to ensure that we have the community levels that we need, we may need to delay opening everything else. Like if we really believe that education is critical both for kids and for working parents, we don't open gyms, we don't open restaurants, or at least, you know, only outdoor. We don't open nightclubs, we don't open bars, and we find a way to compensate those businesses, but those businesses are not essential for our entire economy to get parents back at school. So we make those sacrifices in order for September to be there. And then there are things that the individual schools need, access to masks, access to hand sanitizers, you know, making sure that they have resources from the federal government because our public schools just do not have the resources to really retrofit in a way that's appropriate and safe. Your question, though, about what do we do with the teachers and the people who are at high risk? I think we give them an option. I think realistically, many parents will choose to keep their kids home. The kids who need to be at school are kids where both parents are working and uh, maybe really living in poverty, maybe homeless, where you know they don't have access to uh, internet, and really kids that have special needs that just cannot learn via Zoom. So I believe that a subset of the teachers who are young and healthy 
and actually prefer teaching in person could be doing that. And then the teachers who are either older or have higher risk would be doing more of the Zoom. So it will require a, a reshuffling of the workforce. It won't be ideal. Nobody's going to learn at the level that, but we're talking about years. And unless we say education is critical, I don't think it's black and white. We either open or we close. It's never safe. Like we have to say that we want to open and therefore what do we do around us to get us there by September? So that's part of my plan. Can I ask a, a, a question? Oh, right. And she's just piping up. Nope. I want to ask you a question. Okay. So but it's actually kind of appropriate that she's crying. You, at this you, should. you never know. Don't let her ever stop you. you you're, she's a part of the show. I'm, I, <laughs> she definitely is. She so is. I am, I am torn about the question that I'm going to ask you okay. because it is a question that is not asked of men, but I'm going to ask it nevertheless. I want to ask about balance. You, you are a mom, you said of three. Uh, men are never asked, how do they balance this two, these two things? So I recognize that, but at the same time, I have to say in my own life, when professional women have opened up to me, it has been extremely helpful. So that's why I feel torn. I'm asking you a question that is not asked of men, but by the same token, I know one of the professors I had worked with, Dr. Lori Schrag, she was amazing. And one piece of advice that she had given me years ago is that she used to think that she had to sit down for two or three hours to get stuff done. And she got to be very good at 20 minute increments of work. And I have remembered that advice now. So even though men don't get this question, mm -hmm. and if you just want to respond that you don't like the question, that's fine too. No, um, do you have a response to that, the balance yeah, uh, and I won't I won't talk about balance because I don't think anything is balanced always. So I was talking to my husband last night and I said, you know, I have no work life balance right now. He's or I said I said I need to work on my work life balance. He's like, there is no balance. You're just working, you know. And I do think at times in our careers there might be moments like this. Like you know, I have a primary on September first. I am working all the time, and I have tremendous stamina from being a mom of twins and having spent a year of no sleep, I can work really long hours. And I do think you learn something by becoming a mom of a newborn. You learn about your superpowers. Sorry to say that. I really believe that women learn about how much we can do with little sleep, with you know demands and multitasking. So I think that belief of I can do anything because I'm a twin mom has really helped me believe that, yeah, I can run this race. I can win. You know, So that confidence that comes from having been in very, very difficult times, I think is part of it. But, you know, a lot of my life, I have had work-life balance and it has been important. You know, I worked at the UN, which required a lot of travel. Before kids, it was perfect. I got to, you know, go to Thailand, to Yemen, to Syria. It was amazing. It was part of my excitement. And then I had my first and I told my boss, like, I don't want to travel all the time. And I'm a really good writer. Like, let me do all the writing projects. So rearranging schedules so that being in the lead and every job that I have had since then, I have told the person trying to hire me, I have kids, I put them to bed every night. I'm blocked from, you know, five to eight, I will get back online. I mean, you know, I will do my emails at night. So I have just been very clear about this is what I do. And all the time, I have been lucky enough that, you know, with that transparency, they've been really open to it. And I think being open from the beginning, you know, they tell you don't, you know, don't talk about your life, you know, while you're interviewing for a job. But I have found the reverse that actually, if you're open and you set expectations, then you hold them to account. So some of that transparency and then knowing what you're good at. Really, I am a really fast writer. 
So I know that it will take me, you know, I used to be a speech writer. So I knew that, you know, if I had to write a speech that, or emails or something that I can do it in an hour. And I knew myself, but something else, you know, it may take me a long time and really being able to slot in those things that you're fast and good at during those times when the kids are awake and allowing for, you know, a three-year-old to be grabbing at you while you're on a call and just making a joke about it. You know, I think with quarantine now it's easier, but I do believe also that having a partner who's supportive, if you're a single mom, it's really, really hard. If you have a partner who's there with you and I am so lucky that Rudy's cousin, Paul, is basically taking on more than 50%. Right now he's taking on pretty much 100%. But during normal times, we are very much a 50-50 household. And I don't know how little your your baby is, but I basically, my, my mantra was, I do the feeding, you do the diapering. And so that was kind of our division of labor. I don't know, no, if Rudy, no. if you had the same. You know, I the, I'll say the only thing I'm going to take issue with what you're saying was when you apologize for being a superhero, because you are a superhero, a mom of twins and, and having an older kid and working all at the same time. That is the definition of a real life superhero. I am proud to hear, but I'm not surprised that Paul steps up. He's my cousin. And of course, he's got to step up. We all step up. When we need to step up, we step up. I mean, I, I, my wife is a, is a surgeon and she, she only got six weeks with, with each kid of maternity leave and she had to take it out on vacation. And when she went back to work, it was back to work full time. There was no part time. So yeah, I, I had to step up. I haven't slept in four years and, and I get it. It is a partnership and it's huge. It's so important that you're on the same page and you, and you have that support. I'm not surprised to hear that Paul has stepped up. I'm proud of him and I think that's awesome. And I'm hoping that will propel you into Congress. I'd love to see you there. Um, it would be, it'd be amazing. I think you will do great. And it's going to be great when you call me and, Hey Rudy, I need some advice on education finance or transportation finance. You're my guy. I mean, I can't wait for that phone call. I'm not, I know you're not making any promises, but I can't wait for that phone call. And I will call Gwen for any (laughs) philosophical challenges that I- Hey, I'm always up for that. (laughs) I'll I'll be there. So maybe I should tell your audience where they can go onto my website to find this plan. Is yes, that we, excellent. And I'll link it in gonna, the show notes. Yeah, we, we link it into the show notes, but please do that because you talked a lot about the plan. Tell us a little bit about it and how people can look into it, especially you listeners out there in Massachusetts or yeah. friends that have people in Massachusetts. Please pay attention to this. I mean, just go to my website. I'm not going to go into details on the plan. It's Natalia for Congress, N-A-T-A-L-I-A for Congress.com. I have, yeah, my COVID plan, but also all my other priorities. Today, I put up criminal legal reform, LGBT rights, as well as, you know, education policy. You know, it's it's been fun writing policies. It's been fun having a team of amazing volunteers who are, you know, a lot of them are professors. I would say 50% of my volunteers have PhDs, which is quite amazing. And then I have a lot of volunteers who are high school students who are making calls. So, and they can live anywhere. One of my top volunteers actually uh, is in Austin, Texas, and he's just so excited because he's just calling people in, in Massachusetts. He, he goes to school um, in my district, but because of, you know, he's gone back home because of COVID. But uh, so any of your listeners who want to volunteer, want to hear more from me, want to donate because campaigns are expensive, all of that, I would welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. This is really exciting. Yeah, this was great, Gwen. Thank you, Rudy. Thanks, Natalia. And uh, we'll be in touch. You've got my, you know, everything. I, I really, my hopes, my prayers. I'm really hoping that you pull this through. Thank you. And say hi to Kate and the little ones too. I will. I will. We'll talk to you soon for sure. Okay. Take right. care. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I can't believe it's been 40 episodes. Wow. I appreciate your support so much. This has been so much fun. 
thank you to the people who have co-hosted the show, Rudy Salo, Jacob Weber, Ellie Anderson, and Constantine Hatcher. And thank you to all the guests who have been so generous with your time and have offered up these really fruitful and engaging conversations. It's been an absolute joy. And for those of you who would like to support the show, please rate and review it. And remember, if you go to Patreon, you get more content for as little as $2. All right. So we'll see you again in September. In the meantime, practice social distancing, wear a mask, continue to not hoard toilet paper, and we'll see you soon. Bye.